Greetings, pair of shorefins and retrogrades. Why no female church doctors until the year 1970? This is a fascinating topic that prodded me to dig a little deeper, to drill down into the question. And it led me on a path. And of course, you folks out there understand that this path is relevant, at the very least, a near path to the one that is so central to the Rules for Retrogrades project. A, a very close path. It turns out to be identical to our path of countering so-called Christian feminism. There's no such thing as Christian feminism. And by delving into this topic, I came up with a fundamental answer so shocking that it can only be something I recur to as a sort of renewed, reclarified vision for this channel. It's a very important question, and we're going to get into it momentarily. I would also urge you guys to watch the last show if you didn't catch it, because that is a thematic concept so near to today's show that it can't really even be considered separately. And that was the Andrew Tate podcast, Why... Patriarchs have to be Christian. If you didn't see that because it was getting ready for the weekend show, go check it out. It's an amazing one that I'm going to be referring to throughout the course of today's podcast. Now, first, I'd like to remind you to please, as always, support this channel by liking, subscribing, and clicking the notification bell, especially liking the content and subscribing. That's the only way we grow the channel. We've had the channel active for about three years, next month, three years, and we're almost at 40,000 subscribers. We'd love to be at 50,000 by halfway through the next year. Support the channel directly by becoming a Timothy J. Gordon Patreon patron today. If you do so, you will have automatic, ac well, you have this anyway. You have access to our, our Baltimore Catechism class, but you will have automatic access to lots of free material like this class, like our discussion groups on books. We do book clubs from time to time. In the month of October, we are doing a Stranger Things discussion group once a week in place of a, a book club, which we are doing in the late summer on the book Father Elijah. All levels of Patreon patron have these amenities available. Become a patron today. Go to Timothy J. Gordon at Patreon. Stranger Things Season 1 podcast talk uh, is going to be so much fun. And of course, on Tuesday nights, for everyone, free is the Baltimore Catechism class. You don't have to be a patron to do that. You get that. But you get more stuff like that by becoming a patron. So, I want to proceed somewhat slowly through today's show. A set of basic con concepts that form a constellation which is really, really important for trads, for Novus Ordo Catholics, for all Catholics who are serious about attunement, tuning your ears to the truth. I normally focus on getting the material out today, I want to proceed slowly. The question at hand is why, oh why, for 1,970 years, were there zero 
female doctors of the church, and over the last 52 years, there has been a nuclear arms race of source to canonize more and more and more female doctors of the church. First off, the four that began to be recognized as so-called doctors of the church in 1970 were... Catherine of Siena, Therese of Lisieux, Teresa of Avila, and Hildegard of Bingen. And they are all, let me just say this, based in red-pilled, amazing, amazing, beautiful saints in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, in the, in the more recent history of the Roman Catholic Church. Can I just talk for half a moment about two of these in particular that mean a great deal to me? St. Catherine of Siena, who teaches us especially how to be bold yet obedient, bold yet faithful in her addresses to popes. Her work, The Interior Castle, is not only fascinating from a spiritual combat exorcist point of view, but it is deeply insightful and is the sort of touchstone against which other spiritual combat works are measured. Catherine of Siena is based. She might not have been a huge fan of one or more of the popes that were alive during her day. She shows us how to respectfully, obediently demur. And man, oh man, Catherine of Siena is so important. Just a beautiful, beautiful Italian saint uh, known for being a not a LARP, a little bit of a, a flirt, to borrow uh, Christopher Check from Catholic Answers' recent comments on her, it, before, before she kind of turned things around, not, not necessarily flirt, flirtatiously sinful, but she was a socialite. Beautiful. And Teresa Lisieux, the little flower, also one of my favorites, one of most of your favorites. Just for me, the exemplar, the whole Lisieux family, the exemplar of how beautiful the family life is in a day like ours, 2022, when feminism has ruined the putative flowers, if you will, putative fruits of the family life. I say putative because it had, feminism hasn't ruined the true fruit of true family life, but it's ruined the aspect, the popular reputation of the family, of particularly the marital vocation, and therefore has brought about some sort of, uh, you know, self-fulfilling ramifications. It's a, been a self-fulfilling prophecy. Men are loath to marry. Even women are loath to marry. Marriage is known as ugly, 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 ugly. Uh, uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, in, I was talking earlier and I, I said uh, uh, Catherine of Siena. I meant Teresa of Avila. Uh, we got, so we got two, two Teresas a Catherine, and of course, Hildegard of Bingen. Um, but, and, and nevertheless, you got beautiful works, and Catherine, of course, is, is the Pope, the, the papal writer who beautifully addresses that which she disagrees with most respectfully. Um, you have, of course, from, from uh, Teresa of Avila, the foundational works, and then Teresa of Lisieux is the in my view, this whole Lazoo family is the exemplar for how to have a fun, joyful, holy family. Like everyone in the family is a saint, practically. 
everyone in the family was uh, a nun or a saint. It's, let me say maybe one. It's amazing. It's amazing. To be holy, you don't have to be a stick in the mud. To be bold, Catherine of Siena teaches us, you don't have to be rebellious. And, of course, to understand the spiritual combat, one basically does need to read Interior Castle. Sorry about that. Okay, this is just a prefatory word. Why am I giving it? Here's why. These are some, some of the coolest recent saints of the last 500 years. And, and Hildegard of Bingen, I taught Hildegard of Bingen in my... Uh, it is, she gets a full page, a full page treatment from the work that I use uh, the book that I use in church history, the class that you can take on timothyjgordon.com. Go to timothyjgordon.com to take that church history class. Hildegard's amazing as well. That's, a, I believe, a, a Benedict Sixteenth canonization, right? for, for lack of a better term. She was already a saint, but canonizing her into doctor. Why am I going through this? Because... I, I, let's, let, let me run through how the social media works. On September the 3rd, this month, I did a social media tweet, poll, questionnaire. I said, look, how many of you, how, how many of you know the following fact, that there was no female doctors until 1970? And I asked this, I posited this question with the following framework. Here, here's that first poll. Okay. Um, it is, what, uh, can we get that poll up? Okay, thank you. Uh, so it was basically, how many female doctors do you think there were in, during Vatican II, during or before Vatican II? Zero, one, two, three. And, the, and Twitter polls only allows you to have four options. So over half of the Catholics out there, that most of them who are Catholic on Twitter, only hang out on what we call Catholic Twitter, which is not a formal distinction. It's um, an elective distinction. They think they know. Most of these folks that hang out on so-called Catholic Twitter, over half of them had no clue that there were zero before Vatican II, even the five years in between Vatican II and the release of the new missile, the Novus Ordo, Seclorum. There were none. It was the year 1970, red letter date, that we started getting female doctors of the church. The basic question of the title of today's episode is why. It's a real question because we have 37 doctors of the church at this point. In 1970, we had 30 or 29. And most of the the ones elevated to doctor since 1970, over the last 52 years, have been females. So I do this tweet. I got the response that I suspected I would. Over half of even the knowledgeable Twitter Catholics didn't know that the answer was zero. Until basically, you know, yesterday, if the whole church timeline was one day, this would be basically yesterminute. There were zero. Now all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. One, two, three, four. The church canonizes four. Today's show, the call of the question, is not a critique 
or an insinuated critique of these four amazing saints. Not by a long shot. And I, I know the feminists in the church and the, the feminist adjacents in the church will construe it that way and would relish to construe it that way. It is not. This has nothing to do with them. This has to do with the critique of the post-conciliar church. And it's an implicit one, not really an explicit one. I made that first poll tweet, fetched the responses I thought it would on September the 3rd. On September the 13th, 10 days later, Catholic Answers did a very good show, a very useful, fruitful show on what's the deal with the female doctors? How many are there? Right? So they're, they're you know, I, there's no smoking gun proof between correlation and causation. But ostensibly, everyone, everyone's kind of got in the back of their mind an understanding that when I make a tweet, whether it's a poll or an assertion, like I did on September the 3rd, it has something to do with this book or this book. That is, Steph's book, Ask Your Husband, or my book, The Case for Patriarchy. Steph's book, Ask Your Husband, furnishes the reasonable Catholic, an answer to a question that I tweeted out that wasn't even asked by this book. Similarly, the case for patriarchy furnishes the reasonable Catholic an answer to that question, and it doesn't even pose that question. I posed that question just, you know, a couple weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. And then Catholic Answers does a really good show. You should go watch it. It's Trent Horn with Christopher Check, the president of Catholic Answers, and they, they give some great info on these four beautiful, amazing saints who should absolutely be saints. These are not folks that anyone would blink an eye at uh, uh, when we question the canonization of, of, of certain saints. These four are not in that number. By the way, so the day after that September the 13th show, by Trent Horn and Chris Check, I did a follow-up tweet. Could we picture that, please, Steph? That was an assertion, not a poll. An assertion of the answer I got to the poll. And of course, I, I knew the answer to the question pitched by that September the 3rd poll. I was seeing how many of you out there in Catholic land uh, did so. And so, Perhaps, I'm, such a, I'm such a goofer. I mean, but I, I wasn't, this wasn't even tongue-in-cheek. I mean, this is, the whole point of all this was literally to test sociologically what's, what's the difference in popular response between asking it as a poll, interrogating it in straw poll form, and asserting the answer to the poll. Just go Wikipedia. There were zero female doctors of the church prior to 1970, a red-letter date, a red-letter year, I guess it would be a red, red number year. In the history of the church and in the history of Western culture. We're going to talk about that. And people got mad. People got really butthurt that I just stated this fact. And they treated it as if, I mean, a lot of people liked it because they know where I'm going. They, they know the call of the question. They know the, insinu the clear meaning insinuated by 
the fact that there were zero female doctors in the church, and we're going to talk about the meaning of doctor in the church. To, to answer that question, what does doctor mean, is to answer the question in the title of this show. Doctor means teacher. But they got mad when I affirmed it. They didn't get mad when I asked it uh, as a, a poll question. Can we give can we give one of the bitter feminist adjacent um, tweets that, that where people people took to Twitter and I love this. Of course, this is this is hilarious. This this doesn't make me mad, but it obviously made them mad. This is uh, you want to read that one? He said, "Who is here. it? This is a uh, father." Um, Aquinas. We'll go Ooh, with that. Thomas. Father Aquinas. Um, when Vatican II concluded in 1965, there were zero Chick-fil-A restaurants. Now there are over 3,800. Yeah, what, what do you say about that, Stevie? I think that's the greatest thing that came out of Vatican II. <laughs> she wanted to use that line. All the other stuff that came out of Vatican II in the spirit of Vatican II, we don't want it. But if if if... It, of course, he's he's taking a poke at me. He's saying I'm mistaking causation for correlation. If he's right, though, and Vatican II caused 3,800 Chick-fil-A locations to open up nationwide, then God bless Vatican II for God it. That's what Steph's it. saying. And my response, and I didn't I didn't interact with these people because look, they're they're angry, they're bitter, they 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 can't deal with facts, right? Father Father, you know, Aquinas, you know, the angelic doctor. I didn't know you had a Twitter account, but <laughs> uh, look. Facts are facts, and they do mean something, but I wasn't even surmising on them when I did the poll or when I did the other tweet. I'm going to surmise on them now, so if you're watching, hit me up. Let's talk about it. No need to be angry, guys. Let's talk about facts. No need to bring the good people of Chick-fil-A in. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I do agree with you, though, that Vatican II was all about the chicks, C-H-I-K-S. So that's the beating heart of where this... This particular episode of the podcast is going, and if you even watched the last episode of Rules for Retrogrades with Will Noland and with Dr. Michael Robillard, that's where we're going, is reifying a Christian masculinism movement that doesn't exist anywhere now. It just doesn't. The masculinism movement is sleazy. Look at Andrew Tate. Look at old Roosh V. He's, he's not sleazy anymore. I, I like Roosh now, uh, he's, now that he's a Christian. Look at, Port, Portnoy's not even part of it. He's a total sleaze bag. He's not even in the conversation. There are others in this red pill masculine movement, but it's sleazy. It's unendorsable. It doesn't understand patriarchy. It's talking about how to bed chicks. It's not cool. Then on the other end, look at the, the only other guys out there in the church, particularly the Catholic church, saying we need a new masculinity. It's LARPy, it's weak, it doesn't address feminism, it doesn't root the feminism out of the church. So you're going to see a lot more content. You've seen a lot of stuff with, with me and Steph to this point, promoting these two books, but you're going to see a lot more content like the last show a couple days ago, the episode of Rules for Retrogrades with Dr. Michael Robillard, Will Noland. I was talking with Elliot Hulse this morning. He's traveling in a similar direction. That's where we're going because I, I'm not complaining, but I'm just, I'm, I'm bearing my soul here, folks. The third rail is feminism. And the big idea in this show, I'll just, I won't play hide the ball. Here's, here's the notion that I had. 
The spirit of Vatican II that we all hate so much has a name. It's feminism. It's feminism. The bad new mass doesn't grow. Uh, uh, it doesn't grow out of the bad new mass. The bad new mass grows out of it. The bad new mass grows out of the spirit of feminism that is the spirit of Vatican II. It doesn't come from the documents necessarily. You, you know my whole take on that. This is not some embarrassment to the church where in 500 years we're going to have to undo the documents. The documents don't have this stuff. They had the intent. That's where I'm different from both sides on this issue. They had the intent, but they don't have the language of feminism. They had the intent, but they don't have the language of ecumenism. They had the intent, but they don't have the language of the Novus Ordo. They have technically sound language. But I could, I could bear my soul about this. Look, my, my first two books, Catholic Republic and, and the co-authored one, Rules for Retrogrades, title of this program, I co-authored it with my brother Dave, hit the high watermark in sales, 10,000 units sold. That's a great joy. That, that's a success. I thought The Case for Patriarchy, my third book, would sell off the shelves. And it doesn't matter that it doesn't. You write it because it's true. The Lord gives it to you and you go write it. That's, that's the life of an author. You know, truth above everything. Our Lord Jesus himself is called truth. Our Lady, Queen of the Saints and the Angels, is the seed of wisdom, the seed of truth. If we were to contextualize the kind of wisdom we're talking about. So an author writes, a shooter shoots, as we say in basketball. The author writes. But I, was, I really thought Case for Patriarchy could do some real good. And that book got come for. And ask your husband, Steph's. This book was selling like crazy. Like crazy. And then things changed. Both books were really, really you know, reprehensibly targeted. They were targeted. And it was, it was a hard time. It really, really hit in last spring. They got come for by everyone from, you know, bitter trads that have this or that uh, bone to pick with us by foes near, foes far, you know, friends, enemies, public attacks, private attacks. It was wild. We knew to expect it, though. I warned Steph. Once your book comes out, the attacks will begin improper. My, my case for patriarchy came out about five months before, and it was quiet, and the sales were underwhelming, I think, for a different reason. I'm not going to go into that. But here's the silver lining in the cloud. We still have this mock tweet up, or no? No, no. The, so, okay, that's fine. Let's get Father Aquinas's mock tweet up. You know, you, you see mine, where I just state facts. Now there are four. There are zero doctors of the Catholic Church before and during Vatican II. I made everyone mad and they started, they got insecure and they started attempting to fill in my motives, to guess at my motives. Well, I'm, I'm stating them right now. I don't play games. You know rules for retrogrades is all about directness. So in a similar way, this tweet got come for by everyone. But at the very least... Even though these two books had underwhelming sales, Steph's not so much. At the beginning, it was something like crazy, but then just, it got dogpiled. Um, 
I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not blaming anyone in particular. We touched the third rail. It's, it's, it's no one's fault. We're not saying, we're not, I'm not trying to insinuate anything here. But we touched a third rail with this topic. It is the spirit of Vatican II is feminism. And man, it was a hard time. It was a hard spring. We talked to you about this some. I, I told you at the time, normally I tell you the full tale. The full tale can't be told fully. But the silver lining is that it's still influencing people. Folks in the church know that Ask Your Husband and Case for Patriarchy are still out there doing the work they're doing. They're still selling. Okay, so that's, that, that gives me comfort. It was a tough time. Okay, so fast forward to September the 13th, 10 days after I did this poll tweet, Trent Horn, Chris Check do this great episode. Great episode, and I recommend watching it. We'll link it in the show notes of, I think, the Council of Trent. They talk about Teresa of Lisieux. They talk about Catherine of Siena. They talk about all four. I'm just mentioning three of them here today. And Trent, in the early part of the show, I think it's the opening minute, he says, look, why are there so few doctors? He's addressing the elephant in the room. Now, he's going to take, as you all know, he's going to take a different equipoise. He's going to take a different posture with regard to this. As I, I guess, maybe not fully, but he's more on board the notion that this was an embarrassment to the Roman Catholic Church that until 1970, there were no female doctors. He doesn't say so, but he's more on board that notion than I am, and we've, we've debated feminism, so I, I know that. Anyway, that doesn't mean he's fully on board the notion that it's an absolute shame on the church or anything. I'm not trying to put words in his mouth. I'm just saying, watch, his, watch that podcast he did, the stream. It's really good. It's worth your time. They do a good job, check and horn. But um, in his opening comments, that's where you say, okay, all the facts you give are great, but the opening comments insinuate something. Okay. And, and the, the title of the cast is really helpful too. It's like basically how to be bold yet obedient or something like that, which is a big theme of this channel too. And these four beautiful saint women saints show how to be bold yet obedient. Lesue, in the particular context of the family, Catherine of Siena, in the particular context of our clerical father, the Pope, um, in, in, in the sense of boldness yet obedience in the spiritual combat. And Hildegard of Bingen, we're going to have to do a whole show on her. I have so much to say about her, but bold obedience. We love it. It's the theme of, it's the motto of this channel. Here's the deal, though. As much as I love these four saints... We have to ask two questions. One is a pre-question. What is doctor in Latin? And then the second question is the, the titular question, which is the title of this show. Why no doctors until 1970 in the church? The connection between the answer to one and the, one of the premises in two gives the game away. Doctor in Latin means teacher. And I, it's not, it's not a denotation of the term in a secondary or a tertiary way. It is the primary meaning of the term. It means one who teaches. One who teaches with a kind of authority. 
It, it's a, you know, the other term would be magister. That underscores the authority of the teacher even more, but doctor means teaching with authority. Docere, it means you are a practitioner of docere, which means to teach. This is its first meaning. I want you to consider this Latin term from the Clementine, from, or from St. Jerome's translation of the Bible, docere autum mulierum non permito. This means I, but I do not permit a woman to teach. It's the Bible. Direct quote out of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 12. But I don't permit women to teach. To teach. Holy writ. Now, a word on the Bible. I'm not a biblical theologian, by the way. Scripture is inerrant. <laughs> This is what all Catholics believe. You're not allowed to believe anything other than Scripture's inerrancy. Tradition with a capital T is infallible. Upon it is layered inerrant Scripture. They're mutually fertilizing, cross-pollinating. And then, of course, you have the magisterium, which is not necessarily in every instance infallible, but it's informed by both. Actually, could we put up the, um, the, the other picture, please, Steffi? Um, Old Testament, New Testament in practical uh, inerrancy. Uh, my, my other poll. Then I did this other poll. This is a more recent one. I made this Twitter poll to set up for the show. It's got like an hour or two left. Uh, and I want, to, I want to see what the final results are. But whereas the other poll had, had you know, over a thousand respondents saying precisely what I thought. Over a half of them got the wrong answer about when and where female doctors began to appear in the church, only after Vatican II. This one fetched a surprising result. I said, Twitter Catholics. So I'm not talking to Seventh-day Adventists or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Catholic Twitter people, respondents. Is St. Paul's section of the New Testament Inerrant. Remember when we talk about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Break it down, zoom in on the New Testament. It's basically the four Gospels, then Acts, right, which is, which is uh, St. Luke writing some more, and then the Pauline Epistles. That's basically it. There's, there's a, couple other, a couple other little books in there. But it's basically Gospels. Acts are almost like the Gospels, but Jesus isn't there, written by one of the Gospel writers. And then all of the many epistles of St. Paul. The reason I made this poll, which had the surprising result of one out of ten respondents saying, no, St. Paul's epistles are not inerrant, which is just a clear error. I thought it would be like 100% or 99% say yes, because it's the obvious answer. This is not the trick question or the difficult question that I pitched 10 or 12 days earlier about how many female doctors were in the church before 1970. This is an easy, should be a home run. Yes, of course. The entire Bible is inerrant. Now, I understand a, a kind of practical distinction. If you, This is not a biblical theologian's term, so don't, don't accuse me of, of pretending to be that which I'm not. I'm not a scriptural theologian. But when you look at Old Testament, you might say, yes, it's all inerrant, um, anagogically, but 
it's not as practically inerrant for somebody just sort of point and shoot and read out loud as the New Testament is. Why? Because of deuterocanonically speaking, some of that stuff, some of the lines in the Old Testament get so heavily modified, you'd a constitutional attorney would look at it and say read out. But let's just focus on the New Testament. The New Testament is slam dunk, home run, inerrant in every word, no challenges to logic or history the way some, you know, some modernists try to get away with their skullduggery by saying there are logical or historical challenges in the Old Testament. The New Testament is just a much simpler case of straightforward, it is inerrant, which is why I'm surprised that 10% of Twitter respondents said otherwise. Okay, we can, we, can, we can take that down now. It's inerrant, and no one can disagree. But, 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 it says things that are clear to understand, clearly consonant with the natural law, about women, particularly St. Paul's epistles, and I'm not talking about one or two places. I'm talking about almost every epistle, and there are many, 13, 14, by St. Paul. Almost every one has something about women in the church, the role of women in the, the church, and women in the role of women in the church particular, which is the family, the large church and the small church the congregation and the family that feminists don't like, that make feminists extremely uncomfortable. The, the easier way to say it is almost every one of the Pauline epistles bears at least a line that devastates the notion of Christian feminism, quote unquote, the circular square. And this is one of them. But I do not permit a woman to teach. I, let, let me read you this line out of uh, Timothy, and it's it's uh, my namesake, so I, I, I take pride in this. Here it is, okay? It's, it's 1 Timothy 2.12. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to use authority over the man. Full stop. Full stop. And then he says, but to be in silence. Ooh. Now, on Twitter, I'm not going to name this person. This is a private person, uh, a female feminist who was up at arms, called me a Protestant for, for, for just positioning this question on Twitter. Do you guys believe in that St. Paul's epistles are inerrant? It's not a trick question. It has to be yes. If you're any kind of Christian, Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic, why are Protestants stronger, of, yes, of course, than we are? This person on Twitter was angry and very upset very upset. I, I imagine veins popping out of the forehead and calling me a Protestant just for citing this line. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to use authority over the man, but to be in silence. See, people in chat are trying to distinguish between teaching and authority. He mentions both. He mentions both. There's no distinction between teaching and authority when St. Paul in Holy Scripture, which again is inerrant, mentions both well this is why so this this lady with the in my imagination the throbbing foreheads veins uh who, who's frothing at the mouth in my imagination she said cherry picking lines now um these are two entire books showing the entire full context it is the last thing to cherry pick a line to to prove 
that inerrant scripture says women have no authority in the church. Women have no authority to teach in the church. Docere, uh, they can't be, you know, they can't docendo, they can't be magisters. They just don't have it. Let me read you the entire section of this letter uh, of St. Paul to Timothy, first letter. Let me, so that means I'm going to go a bit above and I'm going to go a bit below. I will therefore... I will, therefore, that men pray in every place, lifting up pure hands, without anger and contention. In like manner, women also, in decent apparel, adorning themselves with modesty and sobriety, not with plated hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. But as it becometh women, professing godliness with good works, let the woman learn in silence, with all subjection. With all subjection. You can't get around this, friends. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to use authority over the man, but to be in silence. That's the middle line, which I pulled out of there. Docere autum mulierum non permito, neque dominare in virum, sed esse in silencio. And then it cites 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, which I'm going to go to now. This is the official Bible of the church, uh, the, 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 a modified version of St. Jerome's first translation into Latin. The language of the church is Latin. Doctor means teacher. So I went to this line and I was like, in St. Jerome, the official Bible of the church, does he use docere or does he use one of the many synonyms for to teach? He uses docere, of course. Doctor. Uh, then I'll, I'll go on. Here are the two verses after these. Three verses after the one that I read. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Citing Genesis 1. And Adam was not seduced, but the woman being seduced was in the transgression. You hear me talk about that a lot. The original sin was Eve's, Adam's part in it was omissive, the omission of feminism, letting his wife do something that was his job. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if she continue in faith and love and sanctification with sobriety. This is one of the beautiful passages where women are saved through childbearing. Now, this doesn't mean that the nun, saints you know, who, who are so important, the four that we're talking about, or any of the other non-saints or nuns writ large can't be saved because they've chosen a, arguably a greater challenge. We're not, not talking about this. We're just talking about St. Paul. Now, St. Paul says, go and check 1 Corinthians. This cup that I'm drinking ice water out of right now has all of, not even all, many of the anti-feminist passages shortened in this circle. If you buy this cup, go to timothyjgordon.com. You can buy this cup. It has all, you can't even fit all of them. We don't even have Timothy and Titus on here. We didn't have room for them. Almost every one of the epistles by St. Paul has something that makes feminists devastated. Okay? So I'm going to read for you uh, just to show we're not cherry picking. I mean, we've shown it by writing two complete books on it. I'm going to read for you 1 Corinthians, which shows, which proves the point in a different way. Yeah, there's a question. Um, could you please make the distinction real fast because people in, in chat are having a hard time with this. Women teaching other women and children versus teaching men. Because people are saying, oh, women teach, can't teach their own children. Mary couldn't have teach the child Jesus. All right. that. It's like, uh, it, this isn't a whole feminism show. But remember, when we make this point that there's no Christian feminism, we have to make distinctions. Women are not, married women are not allowed to work outside the home. Single women are allowed to work outside the home. But even married women can work. They have to work in or around the home. 
You know who says this? Not just the Bible, not just the Catechism of Trent. Six popes in the 20th century, including JP2. You know, the women, the women miscite uh, one, one letter to women where he, he doesn't distinguish, but in two other places, he makes it clear he means inside the home, in or around, in the curtilage. Curtilage means if you have a farm, you can work around there. Very important to most Christians throughout most of the 2,000 years. The distinction is women can teach other women or their children. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas addresses, what about a young boy being uh, taught by his mom? He, Thomas knows this could present a problem, particularly as a boy becomes 14, 15, 16. Women are not the priests of the household, but if they're homeschooling, which is what we do, before I was able to be home, work from home, day in, day out, Steph did all of this. They're allowed to teach other women. St. Paul addresses that. We're going we're gonna to get to some of these other addresses. And they're allowed to teach their own kids. Because, as St. Thomas says, there's no risk of a supplantation. Because the boy sees intimately the fact that the father deputizes the mother. St. Thomas runs through this logic. It's such an important issue for Christians. We're talking about our own faith, Christianity. This is fundamental. I, I know you might not like it, okay? But it's fundamental. It appears in almost every one of the Pauline epistles in one form or another. Anti-feminism. I know you, you might be uncomfortable. This is the fact. The reason that, look, I know a lot of you out there, most of you guys, you love the Tridentine Latin Mass like I do. You think that's the third rail. It's not. It's not. Now, they are, they are subverting it. They are trying to make it go away because when you put the, the by ritualism, the two forms of the right together, anyone would have a brain is going to love the TLM more than the Novus Ordo. So the, the liberals like Francis and co are threatened. I understand that. I'm not saying they love the TLM, but I'm saying what they're truly threatened by, the true third rail, you can't touch, is feminism is the font Feminism is the spirit of Vatican II. The new mass is feminine precisely as a derivative of feminism, not the other way around. We don't, we don't have feminism because of the new mass. We have the new mass because of feminism. The spirit of Vatican II, my friends, is as a matter of, well, a matter of assertion, is feminism. And tra even trads, don't like this. Even trads are like, whoa, wait, what? I haven't, I haven't heard about this. I mean, this is one of the reasons sometimes we get come at by trads. It's like they like the same rehash talking points. Yes, I'm with you guys on the, on the TLM. But I'm not with you on this is the biggest issue. The biggest issue is feminism overtook the church, not in the Vatican II documents. You know, the documents are actually clean during the spirit of Vatican II. Okay, what is doctor in Latin? It's pr practitioner of docere. Okay, I read the full thing. No cherry picking. Let me read for you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It was signposted in my copy of Jerome's Latin Bible. Okay, here's what 1 Corinthians 14 says in verses 34 to 35. Here it comes. Actually, um, there's another anti-feminist place in 1 Corinthians 11. That's where I was at. Listen to this. 
Dig this. Let's wrap. Let women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted them to speak, but to be subject, as also the law saith. But if they would learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. What, what, what? This title is <laughs> biblical? This title is biblical, y'all. Wait, that title wasn't just a snarky Twitter handle? Wait, no. what? What? Let me repeat verse 35. But if they would learn anything... Let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Does this sound like this might have something to do with why for 1,970 years, until that very conspicuous red number year, that red letter date, 1970, we're going to talk about that year in a second, there were no female teachers in the church? Do you know how many other passages in the New Testament that are inerrant, unarguable. It says a woman can't be a teacher or it says a a logical corollary, meaning another assertion that logically requires that a woman can't be a teacher, a doctor. It doesn't mean they can't be the great saints. The greatest saint of all is Mary. She's the queen. She's the only human that's fully, fully, fully human, fully aside from Jesus, fully God, fully man. She's the only pure human who was born unstained by original sin. She's the immaculate conception. Holy cow, she's the greatest. We're not talking about great. We're talking about who has authority? Men. Who has authority to teach? Men. Who has authority to speak in the church? Men. What is going on now, between now and early next year, with the Synod on Synodality? They are crystallizing, they are formalizing, they are hardening the evil feminist spirit in the church that stolen in 1970. Spirit of Vatican II equals feminism. And by the way, it is also the spirit of the original sin. St. Paul says this. He's interpreting in Scripture what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 mean. He says the woman fell first. Ambrose, Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, they all repeat this over and over again. Thomas Aquinas picks up on it. The woman fell first because she wasn't doing her job. She fell first because the man wasn't protecting her. She fell first because she wasn't being private. She was trying to be public. This is feminism. Also, I'd like to just say, like, the the modernist arm of the church, in my view, I'm, I'm angry about the female doctor's issue because what they're doing is they're usurping these beautiful holy women to advance the feminist agenda. I wonder if you would ask each of those holy women, like, would you want to be proclaimed a doctor of the church? What subsequently, actually, subsequently. Subsequently, what would they have said? They're, they're using, because again, it's like um, naming an organization like Black Lives Matter. It's like, who can argue with Black Lives Matter? That's a great organization. Naming an uh, organization like Don't Kill Kittens. Who's, what type of monster is going to argue with that? What they've done is they've safeguarded the notion that women can be teachers against Holy Scripture by putting up these beautiful holy women that everyone loves and says, well, here they are. These beautiful holy women are teachers. And if you argue with that, then you are going against Catherine of Siena. Well, it it created an outrage for me to state a fact. They weren't trying to attack the veracity of the fact. These, these people online. And a lot of them aren't far leftist. They're like, look, I'm not a feminist, but they're, they're centrist. 
Some trads or trad adjacents were even getting in on the act. I'm not going to name names, but you guys wouldn't recognize the names anyway. Little, you know, wannabe uh, trad adjacents were getting in on the act. There's a whole cottage industry of tweets over the last three days making fun of that simple tweet, saying, what is it about 1970? We're going to get to that in a second. But I want to read to you Corinthians chapter 11, just three chapters before Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, which I, I nearly misread because there are so many anti-feminist propositions in the epistles of St. Paul. That's why I did the tweet. Well, as a matter of polling, do you think St. Paul's inerrant? Because you have to live with that. You have to take it on board. You have to do something with it. The church ignores it, I know. The church is in low-key apostasy, and the name of that apostasy is not the Novus Ordo. That's part of it, but that's the feminist mass. The name of the low-key apostasy is feminism, folks. Here's, here's verse, chapter 11, verse 9. For man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. In another place, St. Paul will say, Man is the glory of God, woman's the glory of man. I know this isn't consonant with feminism, but it is inerrant holy writ. You have to do something with it. You have to take it on board in some way. Not change it. Not change it. Not argue with it. Not ignore it. Not ignore it. Accept it. If you're a Christian, you accept it. No, wait. If you're a Christian, let's say what Steph said again. You can't change it. I find these lines surprising. I grew up in the feminist water. You can't change it. Like Steph said, you can't argue with it. You can't ignore it. That was my addition to this triplet. You can't change it. You can't argue with it. You can't ignore it. And you can't say that this is cherry-picked. It's the entire writings of St. Paul in the Bible are all loathed by feminists and SJWs. Could we put up that picture of the article? This is a very typical article in a journal. I just pulled it at random to show you that they know they have to do something with, they know they have to do something with this, the feminists. For all time, the first wave feminists knew they had to make something of the writings of St. Paul. St. Paul is a problem for them. St. <laughs> Paul, and we don't mean St. Paul in his private teachings. We mean St. Paul in inerrant scripture. This is why Calvinists are so much better on feminists than us. I was talking about Doug Wilson's amazing daughter who wrote a book like Steph's in my mind before us by years. I didn't even know about it till the other day. This is called Women's Roles in the Letters to Timothy and Titus. The letters to Timothy and Titus, you can't read it on the screen probably, reveal a growing consciousness about reputation in early Christian communities. Behavior that outsiders might find distasteful, especially the behavior of women, could be perceived as immoral, compromising the honor of the group. How do these observations bear on the present? That's not as good as the, the beginning here. The beginning to the article, I'm just going to read you the first paragraph. The last line of the first paragraph is the money one. Women's roles in the letters to Timothy and Titus appear troubling at best. This is a, presumably a feminist writing this. There are references to old wives' tales and to women gadding about from house to house. That's in Timothy. Uh, there are uh, references to women taken captive by those who spread a false faith, just like Eve, right? Sound familiar? We all have to die and get sick and have original sin because Eve was taken captive by those who spread a false, false faith like the serpent. That's 2 Timothy 
3, 6. They are admonished not to be gossips and drunks in Titus, not to live sensually in 1 Timothy chapter 5, not to braid their hair or wear jewelry in 1 Timothy chapter 2. According to these letters, women should love their husbands, bear children, manage their households, that's Titus chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 5, and remain silent, not teaching or exercising authority over men. 1 Timothy 2.12. Let me read that again. Steph's distinction matters very much. Not teaching or exercising authority over men. They can over younger women or over children. Um, teenagers are a question mark, as, as acknowledged by Thomas. Should not have high school students or maybe even middle school males being taught, especially theology by women. They must remain silent not teaching or exercising authority over men. I'm just saying that a third time. A statement apparently justified by the sins of Eve in Genesis 2. And, and this is, Genesis 2 is recurred to explicitly, a place in the Old Testament, explicitly by St. Paul in multiple places in the New Testament. He says in Genesis, in the Bible. So his reference itself is inerrant. Here's the last sentence, the money shot. It is difficult not to see these texts as promoting a patriarchal view of women's roles. Let me read it one more time. This is a feminist. All the first wave feminists of the 1800s said this. It is difficult not to see these texts as promoting a patriarchal view of women's roles. Okay? The case for patriarchy is called Christianity. I'm sorry. Feminists. This is written, I think, by a feminist. We can, we can take that down, Steffi, thanks. I can't read you all the many places written in fine print around this circular logo on my cup here for the case for patriarchy. Steph designed this mug. God, save the patriarchy. I can't even fit all the anti-feminist writings of Paul, even in their abbreviated forms, on this thing. I don't even think Timothy and Titus are on this. All the rest of them, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter, uh, Colossians, multiple places in Corinthians. Okay? You have to wrap your, you have to do what you can to wrap your head around this. The third rail is not the liturgy. The liturgy is part and parcel of it. But the third rail, writ large, is the spirit of Vatican II is feminism. And women teachers mean that young men will not believe. Every Catholic high school that I've ever known of, aside from very faithful ones, which are the exception, not the rule, have mostly female theology departments. This spreads outright error. I had lots of errors taught to me by my female theology teachers in middle school and high school. And even when they're getting the teaching right, it spreads disbelief. Women are not patriarchs. Women are not Presuming everyone's, most people are going to be lay, laymen and laywomen, they're not prepping to be the priests of the household. Only men can. Men believe men theology teachers. Men, when they have a female theology teacher, will be turned off by it. Assume it's not true. Sorry. That's what happened to all of us cradle Catholics who fell away. The effeminacy of the Novus Ordo and female-run parishes and female-run parish schools drove us away. Christian masculism is what this channel is all about. We're gearing up more. We're going to do more podcasts like the last one. Okay. I think I've covered all that now. 
So the second question I promised is the titular one. I took all this time to get to it. Why no doctors until 1970? Well, 1970, my friends, is the birth year of second wave feminism. The very year, wrap your head around this, that the church was like, we better make two female doctors. I love both of them dearly. We better make these great saints, holy women, into teachers, doctors, even though this isn't allowed by Scripture, even though this runs foul of Scripture. Closest thing to a doctrinal error I've heard associated with the spirit of Vatican II is this. Can I say that right now? The closest thing to a doctrinal error is not religious liberty. That's, that's close, but no cigar. Not what happened with the mass. That's a discipline. We don't like it. We need to get back to the TLM. The closest thing to a doctrinal error is saying that women can be teachers. It is a direct subversion of inerrant scripture. I don't know what to make of it. I, I, I promise. I'm like, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. We can't subvert the scripture. This is very, very close. This is closer to an actual spirit of Vatican II inversion of an uninvertible precept of the faith. So why no doctors until 1970? Well, the church freaked out. And in the very birth year of second wave feminism, when feminism came out, first wave feminism was subterranean. No one knew it was an ism. It was toxic first wave feminism, but it wasn't it wasn't out there. 1970 is the year women got out there. Well, the church said, we need to follow the culture. Affirmative action. Affirmative action. We need to truckle to the identitarian politics of the feminist movement. We need to give way to the culture. We shouldn't be forming the culture. We should be following the culture. We shouldn't be leaders. We should be followers, even if it means doing something that doctrinally can't be done has nothing to do with Teresa of Avila, Teresa Lisieux, Catherine of Siena, Hildegard of Bingen. Okay? I, I don't know what else to say. That's crazy. So feminism is the spirit of Vatican II. The very year, look it up. When was second wave feminism born? 1970. When did you have the first two female doctors of the church? 1970. What is the spirit of, of the bad stuff from Vatican II? Feminism. What did Shia LaBeouf say? Was such a turnoff to him uh, of, uh, about Christianity and Jesus. I thought he was effeminate. He's like, now all along, before I knew much, I, I got that John the Baptist was masculine and based, and that made me want to look further. See? You get the future priests of the households hooked in with masculinism, not with effeminacy. Jesus, of course, is not effeminate. But many young men had Jesus pitched to them by female theology teachers and by a church which is in all but low-key apostasy. Okay? Let that be out there. Shia's point, we all loved when he said, hey man, the Novus Ordo feels like you're selling me a used car. I don't like that. The TLM feels like you're not selling me something. Of course we love that. But you guys stop short when it comes to touching the true third rail. That feminism keeps men from entering the church or believing in the church. 
It's that simple. And that's what the spirit of Vatican II is represented by. Still not in the documents, but it's in the spirit. Man of the household priests. The original sin is a sin of feminism. How can you not get that? St. Paul says it time and time again. The original sin is an act of commission by Eve doing her husband's role and an act of omission by Adam giving up his role to be the one answering the door, be the one driving the car, but particularly being the one to act as interlocutor with perhaps dangerous folks who come to your door. The serpent, don't let your wife talk to snakes. The bad new liturgy is a part of this. It's not the other way around. Okay. One thing that never made sense to me when I taught church history, Catholic philosopher, not a theologian. How many times do I have to say it? People keep saying, oh, you think you're, I'm not a theologian. But I've taught theology for almost 10 years. And, you know, at the high school level, not the college level. I've taught college level philosophy. I teach high school level theology. What never made sense to me when you study the Jewish groups uh, in Jesus' day, the, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, was the weird swapping of, of leniency slash strictness between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When it comes to the Romans, the Sadducees are the sellouts, right? The Sadducees are the ones that did deals with the Romans. But and, and the Pharisees didn't sell out to the Romans, generally speaking. I mean, they kind of cooperated with Pilate to kill Jesus when they wanted to. But generally speaking, the Sadducees were the liberals. The strange thing is, it never made sense to me until I thought about this. This question, the question of my last few Twitter polls and everything I'm talking about today. When it came to what counted as scripture, they swapped places. The stricter party that limited what counted as the Jewish Bible were the Sadducees. They only had the, the Pentateuch that they counted, whereas the Pharisees had more books that they included in the Bible. I thought that makes the Pharisees seem more liberal, more open, more permissive. I was wrong. It's, it's this phenomenon that I'm talking about today. The 10% of the feminist adjacent folks out there that responded to my poll by saying, no, St. Paul's writings are not part of inerrant scripture. Well, they're like the Sadducees. So they're the ones saying that the smaller corpus of text is what counts as inerrant scripture in the Christian sense. St. Paul can't be part of it. The SJWs don't like Paul. Everyone knows that. They've been trying so it to makes do sense. something with St. Paul for just dozens of years. Yeah. Well, since, since the 1800s. First wave feminism begins in the 1840s. Okay, 1848 is the year I have it. For about 100 years, 110 years, they were just 120 years. It was first wave feminism. It was under the surface. They said, I researched this for a book. They said, what do we do with St. Paul? This is inerrant scripture. Then in 1970... Second wave feminism comes out. Women are shamed from the home. They go, they're, they're, they're being farmed out in droves to the workplace. Pope after pope after pope, even in the 20th century, said this is a great shame. This is a grave moral error. It's a mortal sin collectively if this happens. And in that same year, 
the church swaps and gives in and says women can be doctors. Did you? I thought you had something. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say on your point where women were being shamed from the church. That state that that is the same amount from the home. Of time, I'm sorry, from 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 home. That was around the same time that formula was being really pushed as technologically much better for your baby than breast milk. They were gearing up for this for quite some time. Separate the woman from her child, get her into the workplace. Oh, it was everything. Every, I mean, you want to talk about the PSYOP that went into, I'm telling you, feminism is behind it all. The PSYOP that went into even two cars in every home. We need to, why do you need two cars? You guys, you don't need two cars unless you buy into feminism. I'm not saying it's not nice, a nice luxury to have. You only need two cars if two people are going out by day. You need one car. And then you get hooked into the system where you think you need that income. Because then you have to, you got to buy the second car. You got to make payments on the second car. Formula instead of breast milk. They were big on in the 70s. Why? Because starting 1970, get women out of the home. Simone de Beauvoir and Betty Friedan had this conversation where Simone de Beauvoir was like, you Americans are funny. Because they're, they're each feminists. But Simone de Beauvoir is French. She's like, in France, we just make laws forcing women out of the home. If you give them the choice and you just use cultural shame, a lot of them will stay home. In France, we just force all the mothers out of the home. You have to go get a job. And Betty Friedan even is tugging at her collar. She's like, oh, wow, that's crazy. But she eventually gets on board. Everything in the lawfare and the culture, starting in 1970 was to get women out of the home, get them, even, even in the Catholic context, get them jobs of the church. They don't want jobs of the church unless they can have some authority. Make it where they're kind of part of the clergy. Make it where they're a pseudo-magisterium by making them part of... I'm not saying I don't love these four women saints. They're amazing. But it's all part of the psyop of feminism, which is also original sin. Anyway, the Pharisees and Sadducees make much more sense to me now as a binary proposition of liberal conservative, strict lenient. Now, after I've thought, oh, in my little Twitter poll, all the ones that said St. Paul can't be inerrant, they're willing to admit that they thought St. Paul can't or shouldn't be inerrant. They're like the Sadducees. They're the lenient liberals, but they seem more strict because they're well, willing to count less as part of inerrant scripture. I thought it was a pretty nifty comparison, and it cleared that up for me. I'd always wondered about that. Why are the liberals the one with the smaller corpus that counts as inerrant? It seems like it would be the other way around. History is a guide. It, it teaches. I've, I've puzzled about this for 20 years, and I finally got it. Now, um, I, I would just conclude by saying, look, what do we do with this all? I'm not saying that it's an outright dogmatic error or an outright doctrinal error that these four women, these four holy women, great saints, some of my favorite saints, particularly the three I mentioned, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Lisieux, in different ways, that, there, that anything should be undone now. I'm saying you guys need to wake up. If you're a trad... What you're responding to is the, the bold-faced font is feminism. It's not just the liturgy. The, the bad liturgy, the Novus Ordo, is all wired around feminism. And we can accept it now. I'm not saying go around tearing down any of these beautiful four saints. None of them wanted to be doctors of the church. 
They wrote privately. Unlike most of the other doctors of the church who wrote and teach, they were true doctors. These four women would not violate their role. They just wrote. And the church is like, well, they're pseudo-doctors because they never spoke them out loud. The way you think, you think Ambrose, you think Augustine, think Jerome didn't speak these truths the way a teacher does. These women just wrote and the church is sneaking them in. They wouldn't even want to be called doctors. Because think about that. The, the, their, their writings were, were private, right? That, that is a very, that's very close to what femininity is. And because these women understood femininity, they were not out there teaching uh, from the pulpit or hitting the streets or doing anything. They were doing what they what they can do as women. Catholics. Catholics. Who are religious. Writing books, writing letters, yeah. you know, talking talking about these things. Women are allowed to do that thing in a, in a very private sphere, not in the public sphere. Same, same logical structure to the last tweet I made, which is about six months ago, that, that made uh, a similar smattering of centrists, leftists, and rightists, Novus Ordo, and even some trads mad, was about Virgin Mary, greatest saints, queen of heaven. She was not an evangelizer. Evangelizing is public. It involves public speaking. And they all got mad and they all committed the same fallacies. They said, well, but I learned from her. I was like, that's not... Guadalupe, Fatima, Lourdes. These were not teachings. This is Mary appearing to children... And later, kind of like the four female doctors, later those, those teachings were promulgated widely by the church. That's fine. But that, is not, that does not mean Mary was an evangelizer. To evangelize means to bring the good news, to get a soapbox like St. Paul did at Corinth, like St. Paul did outside the Lyceum, and to start taking up, to start holding forth, as they used to say. And what happened? In several of those places, they, the mob, started getting their pitchforks. Men were sent out two by two because they needed basic safety. Women are not equipped for this physically. Women aren't equipped because we're different spiritually, morally, intellectually as well. Now, the exceptions to the rule, there's no exceptions to the hard rule. No women were sent out two by two. No women are the full-throated sense of doctor where they're standing on a soapbox. But the exceptions are like Mother Mary, who is the seed of wisdom, who could say things that later the church acted as a go-between and promulgated what she said. The church acted as a go-between and promulgated the private writings of these four women doctors. This has nothing to do with critiquing any of these five amazing women. It has everything to do with showing you that the third rail in the church the spirit of Vatican II, everything trads hope to avoid forcefully is feminism. And that's why we're going to be doing everything we can on this channel. I know we've been doing this for already a couple of years, but in a more specific direction to push Christian masculinism. You can go watch last podcast. Are there any questions or anything there that, that you'd been sitting on that people had? Um, no, I think somebody tried to offer um, uh, the defining or how the church defines a female or a doctor of the church. And it was just somebody I'm trying to find it here in chat. Um, oh, 
Um, someone who made a significant contribution to theology or doctrine through their research, study, or writing. I, I understand you guys are trying to massage things, okay? It, it, that's, that's natural in part. But no, doctor means teacher. Doctrine means teaching. And Trent, Trent Horn did a great show on, uh, and he was even saying this when I debated him, and, and he was right on this small point. Doctrine means teaching, and it can be um, irreformable or reformable doctrine. Okay, there, there is a sense of reformable doctrine that I was missing in that debate. It's a very small point. Uh, but the, the point is, doctrine means teaching. Doctrine means teacher. Just don't, don't try to avoid that, okay? When the church uses the Latin, you know, its documents are, are promulgated in Latin, and it says, we originally had four Western doctors and four Eastern doctors. Did you know that? of the Church West and Church East, there were originally eight. Then it kept adding to it. Sure, the church can, can use ex post fine writing, fine print type language to explain in a way that's more amenable to having female doctors. But it promulgates these teachings in Latin. Latin is the language of the church. Doctor means teacher. Don't try to run from it. Just let the discomfort ride. Let it sit. Look, the church began this in 1970, two millennia in. There's a reason why. It's not a good reason. It doesn't, it's not a completely, it doesn't mean we have to pick another faith. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the low-key apostasy in the church is feminism. So the first year of what most people consider true public feminism, second wave feminism, 1970, that's the year we get the first two female doctors of the church. Just let it ride. Don't try to massage it. Live with the discomfort. That's part of, God wants us uncomfortable at this time. These things don't make sense. Know them. Hold them. Cogitate on them. Pray on them. But don't try to just say, oh, well, this is this and that's that. And Tim, you're cherry picking. I'm not cherry picking. All the writings of St. Paul are anti-women in the sense that a feminist would construe anti-woman. It means they're not, they're, they, don't, they don't hold authority. That's why they've been trying to rewrite St. Paul since the 1800s. Yes. If St. Paul, is, if we're cherry-picking St. Paul, then, and I've read a lot of feminist literature when I, was re, when I was researching my book, then why are the feminists all super just burning bras over St. Paul, if we're cherry-picking St. Paul. Obviously, there's a thread there that they, they're picking up on. Well, you've seen it, Steph. Most of these people haven't. You've seen the literature on the first-wave feminists, like Elizabeth K uh, Cady Stanton and many, many, many others that we studied and were deeply imbued with in our research for our books. The first-wave feminists, most people don't know, they're not like Kate and Mallory Millett. They're not like Gloria Steinem. Those are second-wave feminists. The first wave feminists were all writing, what do we do with the Bible? And what they meant was, what do we do with St. Paul? Some people admit it more. St. Paul is an inerrant scripture. And it's not cherry-picked because it's practically every letter has something that demotes women. It's not a demotion. They were never promoted in the first place. But, but demotes women in the view of feminists. Yes, question. Yeah, let's do questions. Okay, um, first question. Um, let me see here. It's, they're coming in chat. Um, can women facilitate Bible studies, catechism? If not, how can we recruit more men for catechesis? Yeah, okay. It, it just, let's just, I'm not, I'm only going with the bright lines here. 
okay? Women do not have authority to teach men and they, don't have, they shouldn't have authority over men generally. When we say theologically, that kind of means everything because it means in the structure of families. That's why the man's the head of the household. In the context of women's Bible studies, there's, there's no problem with that. You don't run foul of this admonition, of this proscription, right? What would be best is see if the priest will lead a woman's Bible study for you. And you want to get a trad priest. You want to get a good priest. Get one of your husbands, the most knowledgeable husband. This is my suggestion. It's practical. Between 10 women, see if, you know, if there are two knowledgeable husbands on the Bible, let's say that's the ratio, one in five of them know as much. Just say, hey, could, would you guys trade off? Or, or, you know, it doesn't have to be every time because yes, women are allowed to lead other women in Bible studies, but it should be one of the patriarchs in ideal settings. But yes, if no men know, or if it, you want to do it, you know, at 11 a.m. on weekdays and the men are all at work, then that's fine. But now, catechists, that's another story. Catechists, you cannot say as a woman, I only want to be in a teaching position with authority over women. They will, the, the parish will look at you weird and will start to <laughs> be a bigot against you, act in, in ways that are very unflattering to them and to you, if you asked them that, and they're not going to abide by your request anyway. If you are a woman catechist, you will, at some point, probably the very first semester you do it, run foul of the teaching, which is very clear. So I would say women, just as a practical on-the-spot distinction, women Bible groups in... Try to get a patriarch to do it, a household priest to do it, but if not, still in. Women catechists, I would say out, unless you can work out something with your parish where you're only teaching women or young teen, even young teenagers, you shouldn't have males. You're going to turn them off. Males. What? You should have males. Shouldn't. Women, women catechists oh, should, should have, not. Male teachers, sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, no. You should not have, even a 13 or 14 year old boy, I think it's too old. Mm -hmm. You want a male theology teacher at, you know, by eighth, ninth grade. If we're talking about teenagers, that's like a young man in the eyes of the Bible. But yes, kids and women can be taught. I don't know what your parish is willing to let you do. Female catechists, go for, if, if you could make it where you're only teaching older or younger children or just all the women, fine. Maybe a parish would let you do that. Okay, my husband does the men, I do the women. That's fine. But, I mean, you guys ask me these questions, and I'm happy to give my best crack at them, but I'm just going with the bold lines here. I'm just going with the black letter law. St. Paul is not goofing around. He means it. There's no, there's this practical distinction between Old and New Testament. It's all inerrant, but Old Testament, yeah, it turns out a lot of that stuff is inerrant anagogically, but the specifics get deuterocanonically excised because of Jesus's, Jesus's second law. There's none of that in the New Testament. Everything in the New Testament you can take to the bank. And almost all of the Pauline epistles say, no female teaching over males. You're gonna do something that you're not even trying to do. You're trying to do something good. Don't teach males. Any other questions? Somebody was asking, um, what about fraternal correction as a woman? Catherine of 
Catherine of Siena did it, right? And and you know that that that's private. So and she's also exceptional. It's she's also the exception, not the rule. Exception makes bad law. But it's private, so I I my first stab at that would be, well, that's not a problem, you know. If a woman writes a letter to her priest and says, "Look, this is clear error. I I can read the Bible." That's fine. But it shouldn't be like in the form of an intervention where other men are going to be watching. That's more like a soapbox. This this stuff is reasonable. It's reasonable. So I'd say, yeah, any private letter is fine. And that that's what we have of Catherine of Siena was the published private letters later. Any others? I'm looking through. I'm oh, not... Somebody mentioned Cana, that, that virgin mother was teaching Jesus at Cana. Oh, nothing of the sort. The, the virgin mother says, do whatever he tells you at Cana. And Jesus, as a special sort of uh, not anti-feminist expression of the specialness of his mother, and, and you, could, you could read it, women at large, women are incredibly special. His, his woman is the greatest of all saints. He says, I'm not going to come out right now. I'm not ready to do my first miracle right now. That's the beginning of his public ministry, right? He says, I don't want to do it. And then he changes his mind out of deference for his mother, not because she was teaching him. I, I mean, how I, I'm, I'm frightened by what some of you are pulling out of these gospels. And it's because you're getting you're getting feminist homilies every week. But Jesus, uh, Mary literally says, "Do whatever he tells you," and she's saying it to servants. Who that's a whole other SJW issue. But do whatever he tells you. That is not the equivalent of her saying that to a, another man of her station. Okay. Do whatever he tells you is not, she's a, a doctor. She's not docendo. What's that? Uh, people are asking about Mother Angelica. Okay, so look, just go with the bright line. The bright line rules are that in terms of work, uh, like, like radio, television, these are non-married women, Okay. They even get it as as compared to single women who are probably going to be eventually married lay women. We take we take a a nun, a mother or a sister, and we say they're going to be doing more man's work. Like we would always go see the Norbertine sisters of Tehachapi. Oh yeah. And they were doing man's work on the farm there. They did it better than me or any of the male suit. Not not the stuff that required strength. Like but operating like the tractors. The, the know-how, like twisting fence, we were helping them do that. They knew it because they do it like every month of their lives. And we'd never done it. But that's man's work. When it required strength or the kind of skill that men would cultivate quicker than women, of course, you know, nature is still nature. And, and men are still built for that. But women who are religious women or, or just nuns in general, they will be assuming as an exception to the rule, some male work, but they're still not supposed to be the ones teaching men. So Mother Angelica primarily crafts her message to women. That's the way I receive it. You know, that's, that's, that's how I receive that. Mother Miriam primarily crafts her message to women. Now, does that mean men aren't allowed to listen to the radio? I like Mother Angelica. I like Mother Miriam. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. But now you're getting into, you guys are trying to do the, the gotcha, uh, make a rule by borderline exceptions. That's not even a full exception. Nuns can do things married women can't anyway. What's ruling the church are married women 
who are telling, who are trying to be advisors to the priest, Susan from the parish council. That's what's ruining the church. That's what's been ruining the church since after Vatican II. What's not ruining the church since Vatican II is faithful nuns that acknowledge, hey, I shouldn't be teaching men. Like Mother uh, Angelica acknowledged it several times. Mother Miriam, uh, even in private interactions uh, regarding Steph's book, is like, yeah, I mean, she said some amazing things about Steph's book, um, Ask Your Husband. They all acknowledge what we're talking about. Somebody's asking about women singing in church. Is that permitted? Uh, now, when you're talking, you, you, this is more a question of chant or hymns. Yes, there's a, I see no. I mean, just check the bright lines, man. It's it's the gospel and, and, and mainly St. Paul and some of the stuff in the Old Testament. I see no problems there. I, I, I'm not... I don't know why everyone goes through and tries to do the rule by exception. I see no problems there. It needs to be chant. It shouldn't be these horrible, horrible hymns. Uh, I mean that, and not the the, the warbly voice stuff. That's that's the worst in the hymns, and it's almost always women. Please don't do that. The wannabe soprano. You know, it doesn't like the sound Snow good. Snow White voice. Yeah, the Snow White voice. Yes, <laughs> but but now, um, not not all of the Latin chants are built for uh, scola, right? That's men's chant group. There are women's chant group. That's fine. Why would that be a problem? I think people are just trying to to. I understand. To contextualize the current culture with women doing all these things over and against what scripture says. And I would just say, everybody, just keep keep your eyes on scripture. Keep your eyes peeled. Catholics, keep please just keep your eyes on scripture. I mean, there's lots of times, that's what confession is for. I mean, people are mentioning saints that have worked outside the home, married women saints. It's like, okay, they're probably beautiful, wonderful women that deserve sainthood, but they went against scripture in one or two ways, which is the entire point of confession, is going and saying, hey, I did this wrong. Well, St. Paul killed Christ was present at the, the martyrdom of St. Stephen, probably is now what the best biblical theologian think. Right. Saints aren't immaculate. They're all, not all saints are the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary is the best of the saints. And yes, I know she's a woman. That's why part of the reason I said it. But all the saints were sinners aside from Mary. You understand that, right? What, right. Who's, who's the Saint Jonna? Do you want to oh, yeah, address Saint, that? Yeah, people were mentioning Saint Jonna. <laughs> I love that. I say this in my book, the Saint Jonna gotcha. The feminists really love, oh, Saint Jonna was a working mother. According to both um, her biographer and her husband's biography, when she got pregnant with her last child, they both had decided, it was a long-held agreement, that she would quit working because, because both of them acknowledged at the very outset of their courtship that her work would impact the home. Yeah. So they both acknowledged that, the husband and the wife. So I say that St. Saint Janamola Saint should be rather known as a saint of formerly working mothers instead of working mothers because she, and again, this is in both her biography and, and um, uh, uh, her husband's as well. So yeah. again, like we can in our lives, even very holy people and, and admirable and beautiful people like St. John Amola go against scripture. Well, it's sin. She sinned, right? So whether she sinned by doing that, that's a whole other question. But the point is, it's like, it's a dumb question. Well, is St. Paul... Are you saying that by killing Christians when he was Saul of Tarsus, Saint, we're, we're canonizing St. Paul's act of murder against Christians? No. That none of the saints were perfect aside from Mary. 
So the, the St. John Amala thing is strictly a fallacy. And none of these, I mean, none of these folks that throw these at you, counter, counter examples that supposedly are rule-proving exceptions, not one of them will come on and be able to, to, to dialogue, to discuss. They're always just these things. They throw them on Twitter as if they're know-it-all-y. The feminist adjacents will give them a bunch of likes on Twitter, but they can't. It's a, it's a dumb example. It's like when Lisa starts taking on the mob. Lisa Simpson starts taking on the mob of uh, students, and they're like, "Are you, are you going to marry a carrot? You're, you're a vegetarian." She goes, "Yes, I'm going to marry a carrot." And then the mob all starts laughing as if they, they got him, the zinger. No, that's ridiculous. These are ridiculous counterexamples. Scripture is inerrant, my friends. I don't. I haven't applied the law to the facts in every single situation fathomable. Contrary to what people out there think, I, everyone's like, well, what about when a woman, it's the second Tuesday of the month, and she's got a minivan, she has to repair it, but someone offers her a dollar. Now is she acting like a mechanic? It's work. It's outside the home because she's away from it. What it I'm like, I, yes, I, I, I get what you're trying to do, and a lot of people are doing it in good faith and in goodwill, but a lot of people aren't doing it in good faith and goodwill. Let's just start with 75% of mothers with a kid under two or three work that's destruction that way lies death let's start Literally, with that like school shooters are coming from single mother households or the one the when the mom's not home it's that, and it's spiritual like death that. and and the, the the house isn't a home so let's start there let's start with okay the women aren't allowed to speak in church the women aren't allowed to teach men in church they can they can learn from each other let's start using that those are two big starting points Let's get rid of the big bulky tumor first. Then we can talk about, oh, is there one cell of cancer left in the body? You First, you get rid of the big tumors, you know? Right. Day is volt, people. Let's, let's, uh, you see, I'm not trying to be, I'm trying to be literal. I'm trying to take questions to the contrary. I'm trying to distinguish. This is what we do here. But Christianity is the patriarchy. It's the clerical all-male patriarchy together with the layman's patriarchy of households. That's what it is. And what are householders called in Christendom? Priests of the home. The leaders of the church of the home. Women can't be priests. Women can't be priests of the home. That's what we need to get back to. Being a doctor means being a teacher, and the most women can do out loud publicly is to be teachers of women or small children, not men or even young men battery went out so good timing god bless you all deus volt we'll see you soon god love you hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.